The Guardian. Fourteen days down, ten to go, Ashes retained, it rained, it rained. But it's not over, oh no. And on our third Guardian Ashes podcast, we'll look back on a test match which showed an Australian side which isn't a busted flush and which surely would have won in a mythically rain-free Manchester. We'll look ahead to the rest of a series into which new life has been breathed just at the point when both teams' most fundamental target has been reached. A curate's egg of an Ashes for a panel bursting with so much natural wit and insight that it could make the perfect only connect team. And uh, Emma Johns with us, deputy editor of the uh, Observer magazine. Andy Bull, senior sports writer at the Guardian, uh, and Rob Smythe. Good to see you. Formerly of this parish, but now uh, of somewhere else. Um, but uh, good to have you along here at the Guardian. Good to have you here, Rob. Uh, uh, very much uh, under our umbrella. We'll be joined by uh, Jared Kimber as well on the uh, phone. Oh, no, you if, didn't tell me that. We've got Jared. We've got on Jared the phone. Kimber on the phone if if he picks up. If I'd known that, I wouldn't come. Wouldn't you? No. Is it is that much of a stipulation? <laughs> okay. Well, the only reason you're here is because he pulled out and's uh, on the phone anyway. But uh, uh, first up, you, Andy. Actually, uh, you said. Don't write the Australians off. You said, let's not jump on this bandwagon, all of that stuff. And you were proved right at Old Trafford, weren't you? I'm glad you started with that, Dave, because it makes me look great, doesn't it? Um, I did say all that. I don't think that's a reflection of my judgment. I just think that's a reflection of the fact that test cricket is a game that people always rush to judge, but it's resistant to quick judgments. So, you know, we had to wait and see what happened. And now we have. And yes, as you point out, Australia are not as bad as all that. Yeah, I'm not sure it makes you look great. Vaguely oh. insightful, more, more, more than one might have suspected, I think, is, is probably as far as I'd go. Uh, and Rob, to get a judgment from you if, of the series so far and where Old Trafford sort of stands in it, I mean, Ashes retained, but a little bit unsatisfactorily, I think. Yeah, I think so. It's a strange thing because you kind of feel almost guilty about being underwhelmed, but it's just human nature. And yet, if the series had been reversed, Old Trafford draw the first test and would just retain them by winning by 14 runs. Would all be high on life. It's just the way things work. You can't really, you can't really help be slightly underwhelmed by the manner of uh, yesterday's draw. The manner of England's performances add to the fact that you feel a bit underwhelmed. Do you think? Yeah, it's as hard to to judge, isn't it? Because as Andy said, Lords. After Lords, everyone thought Lords was was a reflection of the team's not Trent Bridge. In fact, it seems like it was somewhere probably further towards Trent Bridge. So we still don't really know how well England are playing. Um, and how far ahead of Australia they are, it, if at all. And Emma, when last we saw you on this show, you were we were all high on life after Trent Bridge, weren't we? And high on Jimmy and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, Australia outplayed England in that third test unquestionably. I know. And the funny thing is that actually I would, um, I thought what Andy said on the last podcast was very insightful. But I would also disagree with something he said, <laughs> which was he said he didn't like the hubris and everybody was jumping up and down. Well, there were a lot of people like me who um, who were actually getting a little bit worried about the prospect of a whitewash. You know, so for me, this ought to be this ought to be the result I wanted all along. Well, I mean, maybe if Australia had won, maybe, maybe I would feel a bit a bit less yeah mare if australia had won because then that would have been that would have felt like a fair reflection to me of that test match in a way and that uh, and there would have been a lot of excitement in prospect i still think there is excitement in prospect because i do think australia are going to come back strong because i think that there is an inertia um, in the England team, a kind of a sort of strange apathy that's what came across to me from alistair cook's um press conference afterwards um which just didn't you know michael clark was even though they they 
what had what for them was a defeat <laughs> they that he still looked kind of upbeat and you know I, I sort of believed in that man and Alistair Cook, Cook looked like he was about to fall asleep <laughs> which I know is partly because he has these really heavy lids <laughs> but but at the same time he just looked he just didn't look like a, a man who was bristling with enthusiasm for the next game deputy editor observer magazine using the word meh on, uh, on a serious, <laughs> allegedly serious podcast. LOL is all I've got to uh, to say to that. Um, I, I was going to ask, uh, you mentioned um, sort of Michael Clark's attitude in, in news conferences and so on and so forth. Before we get on to the nitty-gritty of the cricket, this theme has come up again about the way that England deal with the media and the way that Australia do. Now, I know that these sort of discussions are normally a little bit kind of uh, the media eats itself and we're obsessed by it and other people aren't. But I think it is a valid point because people have pointed out on Twitter, normal fans, if you like, that this is the case. But, you know, contrast, for example, Kevin Peterson's uh, fairly graceless interviews. He did a hilarious interview with Alison Mitchell, someone who I rate incredibly highly on the, on, on the BBC. And, um, and then contrast that with, say, David Warner and the way that he disarmed uh, the whole of the press room. It, it is a, it's an issue, isn't it? Uh, I'm not sure how important an issue it is, but it certainly shapes the kind of coverage the England team are getting because there's actually quite a lot of hostility between Andy Flowers' England team and the press. And again, working in other sports, coming back to the England cricket team for the Champions Trophy, I was more aware of that than ever, actually. It was almost an unpleasant feeling in some of the press conferences because there's hostility on both sides. Apparently, this does come from Andy Flower's attitude towards the press. He doesn't have a particularly high regard for them. He doesn't feel much of a need to explain himself to other people. The Australians, on the other hand, the one thing they've done right all summer, brilliantly, is front up. And they put David Warner up after the incident in the walkabout. They put uh, Mickey Arthur up on the day they fired him as coach. You know, and that's a kind of um, honesty in their interactions that we're not getting from this English cricket team. Yeah, um, Peterson's attitude was odd, wasn't it? I mean, it was... I know that he's not renowned as being a great entertainer, but um, it was fairly odd after what had been a good day for him. Yeah, it's a sort of passive-aggressive hostility. I mean, Peterson is a, a special case in that he you know, is furious with the way he was treated by the written press last year, rightly or wrongly. Uh, there have been plenty of people around, friends of his, to be honest, people like Piers Morgan, who are happy to stoke that up. Um, and, yeah, it's, it's, it's an unfortunate contrast with the approach of some of the Australians, like I say. And he says, you know, oh, I'm not sure how much of a problem it is. And in and of itself, it's not a problem, is it? But it's the worry is what it's symptomatic of. And to me, it suggests a certain insularity. It, it takes me back to the Duncan Fletcher bubble and makes me think that England are kind of playing for themselves. And um, and I was very careful there not to say playing with themselves, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, they that to me was this whole, um, you know, Alistair Cook, Cook coming out. We've, yeah, you know... We've We've done really well. Uh, we've retained the ashes. He barely seemed to mention Australia in his uh, little post-match speech, which I thought was pretty, if not ungracious, then uh, just a kind of rewriting of what had happened in that test match. And and I just think it's a bit odd that, that in a way that they're, they're kind of, you know, it was all about grinding out this kind of retaining of the ashes. And where was the kind of playing for other people joy? Well, I, th- I think there are two points. I, I agree with that. I mean, some of the England players are okay. Swan, obviously. I think Pryor is very good. He's very honest. But I completely agree about the insularity. And I think that manifests itself in the tactics as well. Basically, this is how we play cricket. And we won't apologise for that. And it can be a fairly kind of methodical, one-dimensional brand. And even the time-wasting, which was pathetic, frankly. And I guess that comes from Flower. The strength of his convictions is probably one of his greatest qualities. But also, there is a slight sense that it's 
kind of holding them back both in terms of the development and also public perception you well, say that's the thing it's a team that has taken a, an approach which was what they needed to get them out of doldrums wasn't it they needed that bloody mindedness to 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 take them from being a team that consistently underperformed to one that did that Allen border thing of win whatever way you can but yeah where's the ambition now we can be better than this well what you have with them um, the Fletcher era Hussein stopped the bleeding and then Vaughan took them to another level whereas Strauss to Cook is essentially swapping the same person as captain the other thing though I think England they're a team who prioritise goals and um, priors always going on about legacies and I'm not sure they've got much to play for at the moment you know when Flauta over they had to win the Ashes back then they had to win them in Australia then they had to become number one what are they playing for now they're miles behind South Africa but they're comfortably ahead of everyone else so I think they're in a strange kind of limbo um and I agree with you that, that that has stimulated a kind of stimulated the wrong word that has engendered a kind of inertia I think I just want to wind that back one one minute because I think it is important to point out from their own PR point of view that an hour and a half after the game finished yesterday that England team were still in the ground signing autographs for people in the stands so when we talk about their insularity and their hostility that's not for their fans I think they love their fans and have a great relationship with them that's yeah. with the press and Cook makes a point during every post-match presentation of thanking the fans and if you read their autobiographies which I'm sad enough to do on occasion they pretty much all mention how much they love the Bowie army um so, yeah, I would agree with that. I think they just hate the press and, you know, who can blame them? Yeah, the, the funniest moment in the in the, the, the Peterson um, interview afterwards was uh, after it was after his LBW when he got the tan in the first innings and uh, there was this faint inside edge, wasn't there, and, which we'll talk about in a second, uh, which he clearly hadn't felt because he didn't review it straight away. He was clearly bothered about whether he had pitched outside leg or not and yet in the interview he said oh there were definitely two sands and that's why I reviewed it so you cannot rewrite history that quickly and treat us all like idiots but anyway he was given out that's the way it was and hasn't that been the weirdest thing of the DRS uh, schmozzle in the series that bats would just seem to Don't no know longer where their edges that's exactly what I think <laughs> it takes away the mystique of the batsman I feel you know you sh- I've spent all I'm these years worshipping yeah. certain batsmen and then realised they don't know what they're but doing it's like you've about <laughs> six occasions in the series I've never come across it before it's amazing but the strange thing is every ex-player is still saying yeah, yeah. you always know when you hit it yeah. but that's just not what we're seeing in the middle I don't know how you stack those two things up well maybe one of the issues is that the ex-players the Alex Stewart's of this world who say you always know when you hit it didn't play with DRS Perhaps there were times when they did hit it ah, and didn't realise, and DRS would have showed a nick up when uh, when they didn't know that they'd necessarily uh, nicked one. We so, should we should talk briefly then, as we've moved on to it seamlessly about uh, about DRS and the role DRS. it's. I know the the role it's playing in this series, but uh, where do you start with it? Uh, you know the. The cricketing cliche has gone from leather on willow to uh, it's not the system that's the problem, it's the people who implement it, which seems to be what everyone says all the time. But where do we stand with it, Andy? It's here to stay, isn't it? But it's clearly clearly has issues and hotspot particularly yeah the ICC are going to be talking about hotspot um, forever just after this series I think they're going to be talking about whether they should get rid of it for the series in Australia um, I'm not sure they will go quite that far it's worth pointing out as well that the guy behind hotspot Warren Brennan who is very much a salesman rather than an inventor and I think that's worth bearing in mind uh, has an improved version of the technology that he wants to be brought into use which will incorporate this cinecometer as well so you know uh, there are uh, uh, where can you go? It's all bloody up in the air, isn't it? I mean, it's just all over I the place. I think there are lots the of exciting ways we can go with this. I right. think people are not Tell seeing the more. opportunities here. So, um, I mean, to be honest, we've all had a lot of practice this summer watching the DRS, making our own judgments. Well, what is the red button for, if not for basically... <laughs> 
making us the third umpire. I mean, I think let's turn this into a let's turn this into a proper crowdsourcing activity. Get rid of the third umpire. Just wire it all up to the red button, and and we can make our own decision. If you do that, India will go straight for DRS. <laughs> <laughs> a billion people. I like the idea that someone came up with on Twitter about you re- you replace the word system with straws. So it becomes decision review straws and a, a, a fifth umpire comes out with two straws. Did you hit it? Did you not? Well, we'll find out uh, right here. It would be, be as useful as the way, it, the way it operates at the moment. I do think it. you're absolutely right about it being the problem doesn't seem to be... Well, there is a problem with the technology in the sense of everybody seems to be agreed that Hotspot doesn't actually work. But the problem is one of, of implementation and procedure. Nobody really knows what the procedure it's become incredibly Byzantine. It's written down. Yeah, but it's, it's, not it's incredibly followed. clear. It's not, it's not followed. That's this right. is the problem. Is the umpire there to discern a genuine error, or is he to kind of make a value judgment to whether it's out? Some umpires make a value judgment. Damascene actually, right. exactly. Right. Although he got Kawaja wrong, he was following the correct procedure with the other incident. I forget which one. Um, but the problem is that um, most umpires generally think, "Well, I think that's out or not," which isn't what it should be. So they yeah. need to standardise that. Do something about Hotspot, which has had the biggest ashes for Ribbles since Graham Gooch against Terry Alderman. You know, it's just it's embarrassing how many edges it's missing. But I don't think that the other thing we should remember is even with all the mistakes in this series, there has still been a greater percentage of correct decisions than there would have been without it. So it's still ultimately a good thing. It just it won't take much. Basically, tell the umpires what to do, develop Snicko so it can be accessed quickly enough. And then there shouldn't be many problems, should there? Yeah, I mean, and also, as they have done, give, give the umpires access to their own feed on proper quality yeah. televisions rather than some portable monitors. And make a decision as to how trustworthy noise is. You have to be careful with noise. Do you remember the Royal Dravid incident when he, he, I think he, the ed, the noise was actually his bootlace or his aglet, mm-hmm. and yet he was given out. No, he didn't Did you say aglet. Yeah. Oh, brilliant. Is that what it was? That's why we miss you around here. Do you not remember the curious case? kind of vocabulary. Um, yes, my vocabulary. Yeah, the curious <laughs> case of Dravid's aglet. So they have to make a judgment on it. I don't think it's that difficult. And also, I think DRS is bringing us so much. I mean, for a start, it brings us that T sign, which is, you know, pretty much the coolest which thing. Just, just, that has, which you're currently doing. I'm doing for it. Everybody, yeah. I, I'm, I'm planning to sort of roll it out at mm-hmm. work, especially when I disagree with my boss. I'm, I'm going to do the, like I'm going to do like the DRS <laughs> sign. You know, and that is, you know, that's the closest we've got to kind of gangland cricket in a while. That's our blood's crip sign now. <laughs> okay. Could it introduce next season of The Apprentice, perhaps, or that, that kind of thing? I could see it, uh, see it working. That I mean, you just touched on the, the, this is the final thing about DRS because we don't really want to talk about it, but you're forced to. The insanity that I think everyone's only just picked up on, Andy, that um, they don't have proper TVs. No, and no, by no, watching, no. and the, the way no. that I've loved it being described is they talk about you at home with your TV as if you've spent you know fifteen thousand pounds on this gigantic screen. Oh, you with your fancy TVs can see hot. <laughs> well, no, you know my TV costs four hundred quid and I can see it and. A Darmasena sitting there with something from yeah, 1957. Like, I mean, he's it's got an absurd. old Betamax and a little eight-inch portable but that, that monitor. That is you know. absurd. Yeah, you know, it's you, there's a whole argument, isn't it, about who should pay for That's it? Whether it's the ICC, blah 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 blah. I can understand that argument about it's a lot of money to pay for the technology, but for a telly? Yeah, well, they're just trialing it. To be fair, they're just trialing the new system. Mm. They, they had Nigel Long in a van at Old sure. Trafford with his own proper television and stuff so you know that's that's the issue isn't it it we are living through a trial yes and it made me think exactly. um it made me think because one of the umpires is called erasmus it made me think <laughs> of 16th century uh, uh medieval scholasticism you know how many how many angels can dance on the head of a pin i can't believe you stole the point i was gonna make <laughs> i did didn't i i can see you were going there but yeah it, it's we're all getting incredibly caught up in in the nitty-gritty and uh, and then obviously you know famously 
Erasmus came along in the medieval uh, the- theologian in 1511, came along, wrote in Praise of Folly, which is about the foolishness of scholasticism. So I think basically what I'm saying is we're in safe hands with Erasmus. You're listening to the Guardian Ashes podcast, <laughs> uh, focusing on cricket and also 16th century scholasticism. Thanks very much indeed to uh, Emma John. Then watch out as well for the up and coming Australian umpire in the next Ashes series, Steve Da Vinci. If you're looking to get in shape, build your fitness and improve your well-being, then all you need is a decent pair of running shoes, a bit of determination and the brand new Guardian Guide to Running podcasts. Our eight-week programme will transform you from complete running novice to someone who's able to run for 30 minutes non-stop. And if you're a more experienced runner and want to take things to the next level, then we've also got four special runs for you in our advanced running guides. The Guardian Guide to Running podcasts. Available now on iTunes and theguardian.com. We should get back to the uh, to the cricket because DRS takes us into places that we probably do want to go, but maybe oughtn't. Um, in terms of performances, it was great, wasn't it, uh, to see Michael Clark make runs in the way that he did, Rob? Because we talked about this in the last podcast, England fan, whatever, we're all cricket fans, really, and to see him back like that was was something pretty special yeah it was an extremely courageous innings because he pretty much knew if I don't get runs we lose again um and the number of huge hundreds he's got as captain is actually it's almost without precedent actually um I think only one or two players average higher but it's a kind of a weird that average comes from kind of nothing scores and then monstrous hundreds it's it's really impressive particularly because you get the impression that even now he's not entirely trusted in Australia I don't know about the dressing room um so uh, yeah, I, I don't know where he gets the kind of strength to to make. Particularly, you look at the other side, Cook, who has far uh, less pressure on him, is actually just starting to show signs of it affecting his form in the way it always does with an England captain. Yeah, I thought it was a wonderful innings. And also, he showed um, the other Australian players better than anyone has done all series, and anyone's done for a while how to play Graham Swan. Yeah, it was a masterclass. I think people have said for a while that Clark is the best player in the world off spin and he probably demonstrated that I mean Amla actually played Swan incredibly well last summer but it was slightly more defensive Clark at times took Swan apart on a pitch that was doing a bit on the first day um, and he kind of bullied him and dominated him mentally and by the end Swan was grumpy and sulking in a way that you rarely see from him actually uh, yeah it was just a wonderful innings. He's so his footwork is so good and he always gets probably dummies Clark Swan actually goes forward then straight back and cuts and pulls yeah it was just brilliant it's, it's, it was really good to see um, an innings that uh, possibly the first time in the series, you'll probably tell me, no, I'm wrong, but but really um, fluid and full of flair and pe- people taking on bowlers, you know, properly. Because even with Bell and Peterson, who have, you know, for, uh, for England scored runs, have been muted. Can I also say mm. that I don't, I'm normally a bowling junkie, right? I, I normally don't particularly love sitting and watching the opposition bat because um well because if i'm watching england bat then i'm worried about us getting out if i'm watching the opposition bat uh, it, and they're batting well it normally means we're getting smashed so i don't often sit there thinking what i really want to do today is watch the opposition bat but um i absolutely loved watching clark bat yeah he was brilliant and i thought it was charming as well i don't know if any of you saw the the piece he did with ian ward after play when he asked him in that sort of slightly over sincere way that he does to explain how he approached batting against graham swan and he really couldn't he just sort of said it's something he he'd sort of learnt when he was younger because he was he was obviously brought up playing at sydney and at span and he he just he kept trying in that lovely charming way he does to explain and then said i, I 
it's just second nature now. It's what I do. And he was almost watching the, the video uh, with as much interest as, as Ian Ward was and the rest of us to try and work out himself. So it's, it, it's fascinating that it's so instinctive, isn't it? I bet Gary Neville could tell him how he does it. I bet he could, <laughs> yeah, in a slightly controversial and very interesting interview that he did in the Test match too. I think one thing I'd say about uh, Clark, moving on from Gary Neville for a second, <laughs> Uh, is that, you know, as Rob's just said, he's been actually been doing this and playing in this way, uh, phenomenally, that is, for quite a long time now, since he became captain. Uh, okay, he had a, a small slump in the beginning of this series, but essentially he's maintaining the kind of form he's shown for 18 months. What's really important about this innings is he had two excellent uh, innings either side of him. He's getting support from um, Steve Smith and Rogers at the top of the order as well. And although neither of them went on to make a century, uh, what Clark has lacked recently is that he's been trying to do it all on his own in these beginnings he's been playing. He hasn't had people around him uh, building totals alongside him. He's, had to, he's become a superman, like Rob said, scoring 200s, 300s. This time, you're beginning to see players go along with him, and I think that's going to be uh, crucial in the matches ahead. It felt like an important test for Steve Smith to I, me. I think Clark trusts and rates Smith, which I think is really important in a way that he doesn't necessarily trust the other batsmen. I agree about Smith. We kind of everyone laughed at him in 2010, but he's, he's just he's got something about him. He just looks very tough mentally. Um, and, and he also had three escapes early on mm. in that innings, didn't he? He was he was definitely out yeah, once, yeah. and there were a couple of other very close calls. Well, there was an LBW that appeared to be hitting leg stump, but somehow we were told by the uh, the predictive by Hawkeye that uh, I think it was like a, a shade of the of the ball was within umpire's ball. I thought even even his 19 in the second innings I thought was really nice. He just dumped a couple of straight sixes. No, didn't care at all about his average. I'm not saying the others did, but they, they were just a slight, slightly less caution about his innings. I, I think he's a really impressive guy. He reminds me of when, when Collingwood got four single-figure scores in his first four ODIs, and Steve Wall said, this, this bloke's got something, and of course he turned out to be right. And I kind of feel that way about Smith. I can't quite... I don't know, it's kind of indefinable, but it's just something about him. I think he'll be... He's someone they can build their team around, definitely. Well, we're joined on the uh, line now by uh, Jared Kimber uh, from uh, ESPN Crick Info. Uh, Ashes, the chances of getting them back are gone, Jared. But, you know, as we've just been discussing uh, with Clark, with Steve Smith, with Rogers too, it was a much, much improved performance, wasn't it? Yeah, I think they should be really impressed with themselves, really. Um, it, this is not a team that's sort of been put together on purpose. You know, Rogers sort of came in, even though he did play against India, and Steve Smith wasn't even in this squad, and uh, no one, you know, no one really thought that Clark would even be able to use his back, let alone uh, make runs of that kind. So they should be really impressed with themselves, which sounds weird because they're still 2-0 down. But uh, it, I thought they I thought they did really well. Yeah, in a strange way, we were mentioning it earlier in the, in the introduction, it, even though it wasn't a win, it, it has actually breathed life into the series because it makes you feel that Australia still have something to shoot for if they could get a 2-2. Yes, they don't get the ashes back, but there's a huge chance of momentum to take into November. Yeah, I, why I really wanted them to win the test was just so that the next series they would be alive. I don't think they can get 2-2, um, realistically, not not with the Oval as the last test. But one victory, whether it was here or now, hopefully, Durham, is all that they need to be able to go back home and go, we can play against this side. You know, we were close in Trent Bridge. We've now, you know, we've now won a test. We, we did really well at Old Trafford. You know, I mean, that's the way that they should they can win it at Durham. 
Um, but even if they don't, I think they've proved to themselves, at least, that they're not as bad as they thought they were. Uh, we, and to be honest, I think they did spend maybe the last few weeks, at least, thinking to themselves, we just have no idea how good we are. We have no idea what we're doing. They're making changes every 15 seconds with the team. So hopefully now that they've, they've had this good test, they can at least go forward. Maybe, unless Ryan Harris is a, a little bit niggly, they can even go forward without even making a change, which for them is phenomenal. I mean, it, it, it seems odd to, to not make a change. They might make one just so they feel more comfortable. I mean, particularly given this was a team when we spoke after the second test that, you know, we were joking and you thought even Wade might play and they were they were just going to cobble together a batting order. Well, whether it was cobbled together or not, you know, it looked pretty good. And suddenly there was a performance from Clark and then Smith and Rogers and Stark and Haddon. And, and you, look, you look like world beaters with the bat. I know it was a flat pitch, but it was still, there was an impressive strut about the Australian batting, no? Yeah, I mean, like the, the people that you're talking about there, I mean, the reason I thought Wade might come in is a bit like Smith. He's a bit unconventional, but he just fights a little bit. And Smith has sort of taken up that role and did really well. And that's what they're going to have to do. They're not, you know, they don't have Trot and KP and Bell and, you know, these sorts of guys. They don't even really have anyone that's telling it his best, though. I mean, he's, he's not even done that great in test cricket so far, but they probably don't even have anyone like him. So what they're going to have to do is get the most out of, you know, you 34-year-olds in Rogers, your 35-year-olds in Haddon, guys like Smith who are massively flawed but love playing for their country and are, you know, real fighters. You know, I'm starting to call him the junkyard dog because that's the sort of way he plays. It's not, it's not pretty, uh, but he gets the job done and he, he really likes to fight. And that's what they're going to have to do because they don't have uh, James Taylor or Bairstow or Varun Chopra to bring in. Their next player to bring in is someone like Joe Burns. It's just not the same level. So they're going to have to find players who perhaps just want to fight for their country rather than you know being overly skillful, which means we're going to have more tests like Lords, but hopefully for them more tests like the Old Trafford as well. Do you think there will be changes for uh, for Durham? I mean, there's an obvious one if Harris you know can't uh, drag his body into another Test match, but changing the batting order potentially as well. Do you think Warner might open at uh, at Durham? I think so. Um, I, I don't think that was, you know they were trialling him as an opener again, um, and I don't think they were demoting Watson. But he just, I mean, if you look at the two innings, and there's a lot of emotional things he went through in that first innings as well, but he's got this sort of personality that really wants to get out there and get amongst it. Um, those sort of guys really struggle in the middle order. It's why it's why Michael Slater and, and uh, Brenda Sawag really like going out there early on. You don't have to think too much. You just react to the ball. Remember that great story about Matthew Elliott who once batted at first drop for a straight because they couldn't fit him in to open the batting. Before he went out to bat, he was hitting um, the... Uh, he was basically boxing to warm up because he had to get rid of all the energy because he didn't know what to do when he wasn't opening the batting. You get the feeling that Warner obviously likes to punch things in general, but it was probably like punching a hole in the wall trying to get out there. And in the first innings, he didn't look right, whereas in the second innings, he just looked more content. Now, that said, I don't think his technique is good enough to you know handle uh, opening the batting in England in Test cricket, but if he's more comfortable with it, maybe that's the better way to go because Watson clearly has not been a success. His first innings was quite uh, painful to watch. Hey, Jared, it's Andy. You were just talking about people the Australians might want to bring in maybe for the winter. I was just wondering if you'd seen anything of Nick Maddinson, who seems to be in an amazing form for Australia A this season. If you don't oh, know, you're going to love Nick Maddinson, Andy. You, uh, you, this is the story for you. He made, I can't remember what he made, but he made a big score in a, um, a one-day game uh, for New South Wales. And then when he went out to, uh, went out to field, uh, he took a sandwich out with him. And between balls, he <laughs> took bites of the sandwich. Um, 
He really is the cricketer that the Ashes needs. He's, he's a phenomenal talent. I remember the first time I saw him, I, was, I, I thought he was the missing link and he was going to come straight in. Right. Unfortunately, since then, he hasn't really developed and he plays the odd good innings like, like he did for Australia A and a lot of bad innings. And his biggest problem is that he just tries to smash the ball all the time. Um, and I don't even think that's probably his speciality. So uh, I think one of those innings in Australia A, he might have done it at run a ball or even slightly better. And that's been his problem. But there's no doubt, doubting that Nick Madison's always had talent. It's everything else. But he's been thrust ahead in this Australia A um, lineup because they, they, you know, they've run out. They've tried Jordan Silk and that didn't really work. Uh, you know, Joe Burns is currently injured. So Madison's had his chance and he's done well. The last guy to make runs for Australia A uh, opened the batting in the second inning. So anything could happen. <laughs> Do you think that the decision to drop Agar and, uh, and pick Lyon ahead of him was, was justified, despite Lyon not having much success, but actually bowling very well, Jared? Yeah, I thought he bowled really well, especially early on when he kept England under pressure and made sure that they couldn't score. Um, he, look, he's a quality bowler. He bowled three balls, and by the end of that third ball, I sort of thought to myself, yeah, it was just a mistake to pick Agar. You know, uh, behind the scenes, you don't get as much in the media, but behind the scenes, people are very, being very snipey about Agar. Agar's bowling. I actually thought he bowled some good spells. I really do believe he was injured at Lords, and that really didn't help him at all. But I thought he bowled some really good spells, but he's just not as dangerous as Lyon is at this stage. Hopefully one day he will be. But, I mean, if we are to trust the revometer of, you know, whatever it's called, the truthometer um, that, that Sky have on that coverage, um, clearly Lyon is spinning the ball a lot more. And he kept everyone except for KP, uh, gave everyone a lot more trouble. It looked like a bit of a cosmetic choice to me, actually. Once, once you saw Lyon, you thought, well, yeah, they went, for the, they went for the young, handsome guy who looks like cricket's future because Nathan Lyon looks a bit like he's, bang, he's playing in the wrong era. He, he, does. Lo- he looks like he that. should be. <laughs> you can imagine his head popping out of one of those team baths in the 70s, can't you? <laughs> Possibly, well, yeah, absolutely. But, but that's what's weird about Lyon. He's only 24. Um, and he was also a prodigy picked from nowhere. I mean, he was a groundsman. Um, who was basically picked on a whim by Darren Berry, who saw him bowl in one game and went, this kid's pretty good. And next thing you know, he was the leading wicket-taker in the Big Bash. I mean, he, he came from nowhere. His story is almost as amazing as Agar's. He's not as attractive as Agar, but few people are. Um, and I don't think we should hold that against him all the time. But I mean, <laughs> I saw Agar fielding um, on one of the mornings of the match, just um, out there having some practice. I've, I've seen very few athletes in cricket who move as well as him. I can see why they were sucked in by the entire package. He is, you know, I, look, I don't want to sound too creepy, but he's a good-looking boy to watch. Doesn't sound creepy at all, Jared. Not as creepy as, <laughs> as many things that you say anyway. Now, now, if, for example, Ryan Harris was a, a musician, I don't know, I imagine him being sort of uh, guitarist in some uh, vaguely um, poor rock band. But if Stuart Broad, uh, who I've described as a tit on this podcast and, and will continue to do so, was a musician, I think he'd probably be Jedwood or one of anyway. Uh, and you've met them and discussed the ashes with them, Jared. I did. It was it was weird because I, I was in the green room at the BBC about the BBC breakfast because I'm I'm pretty. In fact, I'm slumming it being on the Guardian. Let's be honest. Um, and uh, it, it, they they sort of walked in and they are exactly as you would expect them. And so they wanted to talk to everyone in the room and I was the last person. And they came over to me and I you know said I was here to talk about the cricket and they they were really excited. They were telling me about how they used to play cricket and how they knew the Ashes was on. Um, and then a butterfly, you know, flew past them and they got really excited, if you know what I mean. They are, <laughs> they are exactly the sort of people that you expect. But very, very nice guys. And um, one of them, I don't know which one's which, to be honest. I, actually, I don't even know what their real names are. I just know Jedwood. Uh, one of them um, showed me how he used to bowl leg spin. 
Um, I don't know if he meant that, but that's literally what he delivered to me in his uh, in his delivery. So I was quite impressed with that. That was uh, Jared Kimber, whose uh, meeting with Jedward was possibly as clumsy as my introduction to his uh, his story about it, if that was uh, indeed possible. We should move on to um, to England and uh, a little bit more analysis of them, because for all his faults in news conferences and interviews and things like that, uh, Peterson did play uh, Rob an absolutely key knock, every bit as, as important as Clark's, actually. Yes, it was. There's a, there's a lovely moment in a Peterson innings when he plays a, a couple of shots with just complete disdain and you think it's on here he's gonna, he's gonna because Peterson these days actually you don't see him that often come good but when he does his previous three centuries were all absolutely astonishing against Sri Lanka South Africa and India this was merely very good but there was a lovely moment as he revved I think Stark bounced him twice he'd been nervous till then and he just dismissed them both for four and um yeah and, and nobody can make you feel the way Peterson does at that moment when he's just his innings just getting going and you know that genius is possible my and, favorite moment of that innings actually was when he took on Lyon because Lyon yeah had actually bowled reasonably well, particularly to Cook very early on in, in that innings. And then Peterson just decided, no, I'm not going to let this guy settle. I'm going to take him out of the attack. And that's exactly what he did. Yeah. And he did get pulled out of the attack for about I, the next 25 overs. It's such a thrilling contempt. I can't remember the last time a batsman bat- batted with with that kind of contempt. Um, and yeah, it just makes it so much fun to watch. It's such certainly a nice change of pace, I think, from, from England's current mm. current batting pacing. Yeah. Well, England need him badly because they are a very one-pace batting lineup now. Um, really, uh, but I mean, Bairstow in theory will score quickly, but he has to get runs to score them quickly. So yeah, England need Peterson as as much as ever. Yeah, a quick word for Ian Bell maybe as well, who oh, just has been sublime in this series. Yeah, I, mean, I was about to say as well, and it was interesting that Bell picked up Peterson's pace, didn't he? Because Bell. Yeah. Is, can be an exceptional one-day player as well, and he brought out his range of strokes as well. And again, I mean, he missed one, didn't he? It was a decent ball, and he, and he took his eye off it and missed it, which can happen. But he was wonderful again, wasn't he? He's been England's player of the series, surely. He's been the player of the series, um, and I actually think he's starting to look like, in this kind of form, someone who's capable of being the best batsman in the world. Yeah, I would agree with that. But he's kind of had four phases down the long, long introduction. Then for 18 months, he batted incredibly well in Australia and against India. Then he, after Ajmal, he went into his shell for 18 months. And I think that's been the problem because England's batting lineup needs him to be playing really well and scoring quickly at five. And now he's batting probably as well as he did in that golden period. And I agree with Andy. In 2011, he was the best player in the world and he, he's capable of being, he's playing so well. Um, there are weaknesses, though, aren't there, in the uh, in the England side that almost were exploited at Old Trafford. Would have been, I think, but for the rain. And England looked on the way to a defeat. And they shouldn't sit back and be too pleased with themselves. I'm sure they won't be. But uh, Bell has been the one in terms of the batting lineup who has propped up England time. And again, I know Peterson has made runs too, but and Cook and Trot made a fifty each. But they, 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 there are big weaknesses there. Emma. That's the thing about us talking about. You know, not playing as well as we can at the moment. I'm starting to wonder: is that even true? I, I, I know, I know they have batted better in the past. I understand that to be true, but we can't go on keeping saying, "Well, obviously England weren't playing at their best." At some at some stage, what they are playing is how they play. Is is that is their best? You go out into a test match and you try your best, and if if you're not necessarily making yourselves look good, that that doesn't necessarily mean you're not fulfilling your potential. I, I just I'm worried, and I'm worried it's a mental thing, really. Um, like we're talking about this kind of this pacing, this conservatism. I'm I'm worried that that they're just not getting out there and 
uh, that they do need Peterson Belt to just remind them there's something else. There's there's another way of playing. I think that was true of the bowling as well as the batting. Actually, I think this team has never recovered from being smashed in Pakistan. I think they went in 2011. They were thrashing everyone, playing incredibly exciting cricket. But since Pakistan has been a kind of sadness and a conservative, I think they they thought they had greatness to attain. And I think after Pakistan, they realised actually we're just a very good team. Um, which in itself, you know, is a great, is a fine thing. But we're not a great team. We don't have the capacity to be great. And you could argue that Flowers holding that, but I kind of think of the Sven Joran Eriksson years, and everyone said he was holding the golden generation back. They could do this, they could do that. Well, actually, with hindsight, they couldn't. And he did really well to get them to three quarterfinals by playing a fairly conservative brand of football. So I would probably argue on balance if Flower tried to kind of England risk. If they try to go to another level, they risk just the whole thing falling apart because it's so kind of tightly wrought. If I fast forward to uh, the next Ashes series, um, how many of this side do you think will be starting? And let's let's say Tremblett will play if fit because of the you know pitch conditions and so on. How many of the rest of this England side do you think will start, Andy? How, how solid is it? Because isn't one of the it's incredibly solid? Yeah, but, but isn't one of the weaknesses of the the current England setup? Having grown up, uh, I'm trying to think how old everyone else is in the '80s when you know it, there were three changes a Test match, a bit like Australia are now. Isn't it a bit too solid sometimes? Shouldn't there be that scope for change? We hear all the time about it's a question you know, of balance. we know who we fancy, we know yeah. who our guys are. But yeah, it is a question of balance. But haven't they gone too far? I'm not sure they have, no, because I think the flip side of that is, and Rob was just talking there about the potential for greatness, I think the flip side of that is you have Joe Root and Johnny Bairstow, and right now I think that makes us a little bit vulnerable because we've got two quite young, inexperienced players there. I think in three years' time, those two both have the potential to be two of the best batsmen in, in the world. So that may be the kind of thing that pushes them on to that kind of greatness. In the last five years, England have resisted calls at various stages to drop Cook, Trot, Bell, um, and particularly Anderson, or Anderson had a spell out, but it was other times. And investing so much in them has probably made them the players they are, as Andy said. It's interesting that this... Can, can I just say, isn't there a flip side before it... Mm. They dropped Strauss and it worked. Well, yeah, OK, and then Bell I mean, had there, a... There are two yeah, ways of looking. I, no, I agree. And Bell had a small period out in 2009 as well. No, no, I, I agree with that. It is, it is a case of balance. But it's interesting that this team are top of all the run scoring and wickets charts. And there's a reason for that. I do... I still think on balance Jeff Miller is kind of the unsung hero of this era and that they've got the right approach. Maybe they take it too far, perhaps. I mean, there were times when Collingwood seemed to be in the team forever. Um, But generally, I think they they get it right a lot more than they do It means that you, with the young players, and I'm not saying they've got it wrong, but with the young players, if... You get a lot of opportunities. Now, I I see that that's right from a psychological point of view. They've got to feel comfortable. But I was just thinking about Bairstow. And, you know, the fact is we've picked him for the next test. Um, England have picked him for the next test. <laughs> I'm so impartial. Um, uh, so he's basically there to stay for this series, which means... He's got to be there to stay to go to Australia because oh, he'll be in the squad. So, so but it, but it, but he'll be he'll be in the team, won't he? I mean, he you can't you know if we were talking about you know a Gary Balance for example, you know bringing somebody, you're not just going to take them to Australia and and drop them in on the first test and say here's here's your chance. So well, I just they, they feel like with, they did it with Joe Roots in India. Yeah, they might. I, I mean, yeah, I think it's feasible they might play balance. They'll give they gave Owen Morgan a year, didn't they? So I think they're not afraid to drop people. Um, the interesting thing is that this plan of giving everyone a chance doesn't seem to apply to Stephen Finn, who's potentially the most kind of dynamic and spectacular cricketer of all of them. 
Um, maybe he doesn't fit the team ethos. I don't know. Well, well they, they, ch- they change bowlers around more than batsmen, though. That's just yeah, that's a thing, true. isn't it? I that's mean, you, that, you, batsmen seem to get an infinite number more chances than unless, bowlers. Unless do. they're James Taylor, in which case they get. Well, that, that's the thing. They had a weird year, didn't they? Of musical chairs at number six. Taylor Bapara came in yes. for a test, or he then made himself unavailable. Samit for a little while. Um, yeah. So that, that's kind of the one anomaly in this approach. There's a sense, isn't there? And I'm not saying it's a, it, it, incorrect on, on Flowers' part of characters that they fancy. The yeah. people they get it, not not necessarily to do with. Te- of course, they've got to be technically Absolutely. good enough to play Test cricket. But it, it a bit like you've been saying about Smith with Australia. Yeah. You know, not technically perfect, but someone that Clark really wants by his side. And you get the impression with Taylor that yes, he was picked into the squad. You certainly get that impression with with Bapara, who's had chances, and, and and several other players. And Finn maybe fits into that. That yes, they have to pick him because his stats are good and because he brings something. But fundamentally, do they really, really fancy him in the trenches? I'm no, never I mean, quite sure well, of that. I'm not sure it's about whether they fancy him in the trenches. I think it's probably more to do with David Saker's attitude towards what a test bowler should be and the ability to bowl economically to, to a tight plan. I think Finn is just a bit too erratic for him right now. And, and the Australians took a liking to him in the latter stage of the match at Trent Bridge, which would be very hard to, to get out of your mind when you're selecting the squad, I guess. Yeah, and Cook also lost a bit of trust in him, didn't he? Hardly bowled him at all. Yeah, you're right about the type of character. I mean, Joe Root would be a great example. They obviously saw things in India as much as his ability. It was his kind of mental strength and personality. Finn's a strange one. I mean, it's, it's, it's a big thing to come back from being dropped twice in consecutive Ashes series, once after three tests and once after one. I think there's a slight worry now that he, I mean, his potential is probably the greatest of any England fast bowler, certainly in my lifetime. But there's a, there's a serious worry now that it won't be fulfilled. I'm sure he'll go to Australia, but he won't be near the starting eleven. Yeah, they, I think they've got an interesting, I wouldn't call it a dilemma, but, you know, I mean, you could make a strong case for them picking onions but, for, for Chesterler Street. Oh, and, no, I agree with that. And that, that will be an interesting test of how open-minded they are about bringing in a player like I would onions. have thought onions had a really good, I assumed he had a really good chance of being picked. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There was, there's also a point to make, uh, moving on to, to Chesterler Street, that if onions isn't picked... For Chester the Street in good form yeah. on his home ground, he he's never going to get picked again, is he? I mean, if he's not picked this Friday, he's probably not going to go on the tour, is he? If he's not going to play there, he's not going to play anywhere. I don't think he'll go on the tour, no. They'll, they'll pick the three he played and then Tremlett and Finn for their bounce. No, I agree. I feel really sad for Onions. He's kind of um, the ghost at the feast of the last few years. I mean, in a parallel universe, he could have played 50 tests by now. It's like all those great West Indian fast bowlers, Sylvester Clark and Wade Daniel, who kind of five tests or something. I feel really sorry for him. So Graham Onions is Banquo. Kind of <laughs> in, in terms of the other batsmen that they like the look of, it will be interesting on the tour, won't it, um, to see who, who goes. Taylor, presumably, is in pole position. Balance may go as well. Yeah, there's a lot of hype around balance at the moment, um, rightly or wrongly. I, I'm, I'm not sure people who are talking about him have necessarily seen enough of him to know, but he's certainly like in the frame. Taylor, well, he got left out last winter. He's back in the squad now, so possibly. Um, and then you have to say, what happened to Nick Compton, really? Mm. And is Nick Compton's career over? I mean, they might take him as a reserve opener, but... It's starting, to, it's starting to look like it might be, isn't it? I mean, England have to motivate themselves now, don't they, Rob, for the, for the rest of this series. And it, it's easy to say that you're going to, that it's about winning the series and not letting the Australians back in. But it's quite a test, the next two test matches, uh, from an English perspective, to go out there and be professional and not having partied. I'm sure they haven't, you know, uh, retaining the Ashes. But you take my point. It would, be, it would be impressive if they went out and won 4-0 now. It would. They, they did it really well in 2011. They, they kind of maintain their focus it's strange isn't it to be looking forward to a dead rubber of an Ashes series normally that, that was a good time for us because we'll actually win a game whereas now you're slightly worried that it'll be the reverse I think they'll be okay I think they, they I, 
I think they'd have been slightly stung by yesterday. There were a few suggestions that they weren't entirely professional. Uh, whether that's true or not, I don't know. I suspect probably not. But I think I, I think they'll be okay. Is there a chance they'll cut loose and and we'll actually see some more exciting and adventurous play from them? That's yeah, what I'm absolutely thinking. Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a really good point because I think in this match they did get sort of hidebound by this very weird approach to the game of like what we need to do here is draw and retain the Ashes. And as much as Graham Swan tried to suggest they still wanted to win the game, that was a nonsense. I mean, pretty much from the second day onwards, England's approach was we're going to draw this game and that's what we need to do. Because they are, I mean, you can see that as individuals, they're such competitive people. I'm watching Swan um, celebrate his Pfeiffer and running over and hugging Kirk. I just, in that moment, I was like, yeah, he he is so competitive. This man is so competitive that, like, he loves that he just got a Pfeiffer, even in this match that basically they're playing out for a draw. I know that they have that in them. It's just that I feel like I'm not seeing it at the moment. Yeah, I guess, though, if you are competitive and you're told there's a plan that will allow you to win a series, then you follow it, don't you? Yeah. It doesn't necessarily lead to exciting cricket. It leads to doing what needs to be done to uh, to win, I suppose. I'm just worried that, you know, the most creative thing happening, um, you know, especially yesterday, was the was that record-breaking beer snake. snake how how long did it go, do we it, know? It was pretty much the length of the stand. I mean, it was it was extraordinary. And that was, that was you know, to me, was one of the highlights. This is absolutely, absolutely thrilling news for those of us who, uh, who absolutely love all that sort of behaviour and don't wish it was still the 1930s, which is uh, not me, not me at, at all, I can absolutely guarantee. Um, yeah, it, it's, it, it's funny, isn't it? In an Ashes summer, um, I know other great things have happened. Do you remember, Emma, we talked in the first podcast about Jimmy Anderson maybe getting on the podium for sports personality yeah. of the year and things like that. That but is undoubtedly the prize he's got his eyes set on. That's I know, I know, it's to easy to be cynical. But I was talking more, it's, it's a, it's, this was jumped on, on on the forum as well, but it's just it's a point to make about the wider perception of cricket. That's that's why why I make yeah. the point. But th- there is a danger this summer that, you know, not in this parish, of course, but the Ashes are just going to sort of slink away as the football season starts and the, the stars of the summer won't be uh, Ian Bell, which he, he hopefully, if he carries on with his form, will be man of the series. But the stars of the summer will be Chris Froome, will be Andy. Andy Murray will be um, the people who do well at the start of the football season and it's a shame isn't it yeah I'm afraid there's a slightly depressing inevitability about that um, I think it's it's going to if the, if the last two matches are extraordinarily entertaining it'll hold the, the wider public interest but if they're not I think it's going to disappear that's but, why I think um, Warner getting I'm, I'm going to say something very controversial now here go on that's why Warner getting booed is a good thing mm-hmm. because because li- sport needs a pantomime sport, villain sport needs a pantomime villain and and literally people were asking me why who is this man why is he getting booed and you could tell the story and they thought it was all wonderful and hilarious and people who were not interested in cricket found that entertaining so i i will i will defend to the death a crowd's right to boo <laughs> i thought in a way as well the reaction to warner's uh, the, the the interview he gave which which was amusing and self-deprecating and lots of nice things but it, it felt a little bit like um i think it was tony hawks uh, there's a when, he, when in his days when he used to do stand-up he used to say the place i'd most like to do stand-up is center court at wimbledon because anything gets a laugh um a pigeon flies over and the whole place falls into you know into laughter and it felt a little bit like that with warner and it almost summed up how kind of dull to, a, to an extent parts of the series have been that he gave this interview that was mildly self-deprecating and quite amusing and then you know he, he ended up being bill hicks or groucho Marx. <laughs> I mean, it wasn't that funny all he said was yeah threw a hook at joe root again and 
that yeah. was pretty much the the end the end of the comedy. I, but it, it it proves that it, the, the series needs its stars yeah. and needs and, its and booing. You know, if you think about booing, booing is the well, least sophisticated. They weren't shouting roots. rude. Well, they could have been. To be honest, it's very difficult to tell the difference. But it, it is is not a sophisticated diss. I would say it that way. I mean, I actually think one of the <laughs> one of the funniest things that happened at Lords um, was when uh, the Aussie crowd booed. Um, broad as he walked out to bat except it wasn't broad it was anderson <laughs> and so there was this fantastic booing all the way to the middle and i don't know at what point they realized they'd got the wrong man but that was one of my favorite moments which also happened at old trafford didn't it steve smith came out and was booed people didn't notice the blonde tips and uh, thought he was warner Yes, it did. And it just shows how, how far things have gone. People don't even know who the right person is to boo anymore. Uh, the English will get it, though, uh, over in Australia, won't they, Andy? Which should be quite entertaining. I'm trying to think who the in- English... Probably Joe Root, Joe Root will, be, will be the anti-hero. He'll be the one that they'll all boo. Broad, of course. Yeah, and Broad. Mm. Yeah, well, Broad, right, rightfully so. If I had my say, <laughs> with me in the team. What do you think about Broad? Uh, yeah, exactly. He I'll, walked. He walked this test. Oh, Come on. Yeah, He's going to have yeah. gone up a little and bit. And what he did, what he did was, I'm sorry, I'm going to make this point. I know I'm supposed to be hosting this, but what he did is exactly what people who are accused of convenience walking have done over the years. He didn't walk when it mattered and he walked when it didn't. And that's exactly what he did. And that's, uh, that, what did Ian Chappell say? At least be consistent. If you're yeah. going to not walk, stand there all the time and let the umpire make a call. Don't try and be a good guy once and then be a bad guy the rest of the time. Come on, that's true. No? Yeah, and he, he started a little trend, didn't he? Swan walked straight after that as well. So, uh, yes, he did. And uh, it was it was great to see the spirit of cricket. <laughs> <That's> <laughs> fantastic. Just just finally, changes for um, for Durham, Rob, uh, in terms of both sides. Do you expect maybe Jackson Bird to come in if Harris is, is, is still a bit rickety? I would assume so, yeah, which is a shame because it's been such a pleasure watching Harris. But I'd imagine that will happen. I think they might stick with Bresnan. I hope they bring Onions in, but I think they'll stick with Bresnan. Um, I think they might put Warner up. And just find a hole somewhere and dump Shane Watson in it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's difficult for him, isn't it? And uh, what, what about England, Andy? You, onions for broad, obviously, but uh, but, <laughs> but um, anything else? I think England will probably go with the same team. I'm slightly boring to say, but that's what I imagine they'll do. No, well, that's fine. And Emma, you go along with all of that? Oh, definitely. I mean, I would actually, I'd love to see Onions play for my <laughs> I keep saying this, don't I? And then probably when he plays, you know, he'd have a bad match and I'd, I'd fall out of love with him all You're over again. You're quite fickle, aren't you? Because it was really Jimmy, Jimmy, am. Jimmy, and now it's Graham Onions uh, all the way. The I know. Conditions at Durham, as we said, have been shocking this season. I mean, I think they've got one batsman averaging over 40, Durham have. Fantastic. And Must six bowlers averaging under 30. So no, no one has made 350 at Durham this any, season. Any danger of four seamers? That could happen, couldn't it? But England, England aren't going to leave Swan out, are they? Yeah, they might go down that route. It's going to be, be a low-scoring game. For yeah, sure. well, maybe the tantalising prospect of Jackson Bird for for a Lion then. Potentially, Jackson Bird's record is astonishing in first-class cricket. I think he averages about twenty, or maybe even below twenty. He's got a sensational record. So we don't expect a five-day Test match at Durham then, Andy. I really wouldn't expect it, no. It depends on the weather, I guess, but there you go. Well, thank you very much indeed uh, for joining us. Thanks to Jared Kimber, of course, with his uh, Jedwood stories on the phone. Thanks to Andy Bull, and good to see you, Rob Smythe, back in, in this building. I'm thank glad you. they let you in. And to Emma John as well. Um, that's it from uh, our Guardian Ashes podcast. So until the end of what doubtless will be a fascinating and very short uh, fourth test from me, Dave Farrah, it's goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>